we're enough. They don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn anything. You're enough. I can't try and be like this great dad, you Sam, and know this stuff and be the strong man and all this. I'm like, I'm here and this is what I have to offer. And the courage to just, this is what I have to offer. And knowing that that's enough. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome to the Kathy Heller Podcast. This show is meant to be a guide for you. I want to be that mentor who can hold your hand through this journey. I know that there are so many twists and turns in navigating not only what is happening in our mind, but also understanding strategically how we want to get from where we are to where we want to go. In the show, we're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day, that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful. What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are? How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life. And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people. It will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller Podcast. I am so excited today because Andrew McCarthy is on the show and he's so adorable. He's truly one of the most enjoyable people to spend time with. I had such a crush on him growing up in the 80s watching movies like Pretty in Pink and to find out that he is truly so humble and down to earth and so wise and such a great dad, I was just smitten. I cannot wait to share this episode with you. Before we dive in, I want to let you know that today I'm starting a five-day free workshop. It is absolutely free. We're going to talk about how you can design the life of your dreams. Like We all have this whisper inside of us. Let's get real. We all have this way of knowing what we really want. And then we have this part of us that talks ourselves out of it. And we hold ourselves back from living into our potential. And there is a way to fix that. There is a way for you to actually allow yourself to have that which you've been dreaming of. And so we're going to talk about that all week. If you want to join us, you can go to kathyheller.com slash abundant and sign up for the five-day workshop. All right, well, let's get into today's episode because Andrew McCarthy is just the sweetest. He is an award-winning travel writer, if you didn't know that. He's a director, actor, of course, and New York Times bestselling author. You may have seen him in those classic movies like St. Elmo's Fire, Class, Weekend at Bernie's, Pretty in Pink. He also has directed TV shows like Orange is the New Black, The Blacklist, Grace and Frankie, New Amsterdam. But 
That's not all there is. As an award-winning travel writer, he's written for publications like National Geographic Traveler, LA Times, New York Times, Travel and Leisure, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal. And he's the author of best-selling books like Brat, An 80 Story, The Longest Way Home. And he has an incredible new book that comes out tomorrow. It's called Walking with Sam, A Father, A Son, and 500 Miles Across Spain. It's an intimate, funny, and poignant travel memoir following Andrew and his son, Sam, as they walk the epic Camino de Santiago. Their journey leads to beautiful conversations about things they hadn't talked about before, like divorce the trauma of school, McCarthy's difficult relationship with his own father, fame, and of course, flaming hot cheetahs that threaten to either derail the relationship or cement it. It's a beautiful book, and it's definitely going to inspire you to have your own soul-opening adventure, so pre-order your copy now. I've always adored Andrew, and it was a little nerve-wracking to have this conversation with him because he's been in my world since I was like five years old, but he was even more of a beautiful human than I could have imagined. It's been so cool to see how much he's just continued to grow and evolve as a person with his career. And I'm honored that we have him for this chat. You're going to love him if you don't already. So without further ado, please welcome the wonderful, the lovable, the wise Andrew McCarthy. Andrew, thank you so much for making the time. This is so surreal and fun. What a gift. I'm glad to be with you. Um, I'm just going to try to act like this is so normal for me. So, But it's not normal for any of us, right? No, (laughs) clearly. Yeah. Not normal. Yeah. If you only knew. Tell me. (laughs) You have gone on to like literally travel the world. You have so much wisdom and Mm. perspective now, which I can't wait to hear. And you've wrote this book and did this incredible journey with your son. Before we get into that, I feel like I have no idea about the beginning of your story. And I just want people to know, because I don't know, like at what age did you have even a whisper that you wanted to stand out and say things and be an actor or be a storyteller? Like, when did that even come into your to your view? Yeah, well, it's easy to peg because I was 15. I was in, I think, 10th grade, and I had just been cut from the high school basketball team. And <laughs> my mother told me that I should try out for the school musical. And I was like, I, I don't want to be the musical. I want to be the point guard. And <laughs> That wasn't going to happen because I was too short. And so anyway, so <laughs> I did try out for the school musical and I was cast as the Artful Dodger in Oliver. And because you weren't there, I can tell you with full confidence, I was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and I was because the second I walked out, the second I walked out, I was, you know, uh, Tennessee Williams, the great American player, had a line that, of talking about love. He said it was as if a room that had always been half in shadow was suddenly in the light. And that's what I felt like when I walked on stage. I felt like myself in a way that I kind of just went, oh, there I am. You know, my wife is Irish, has all these good Irish sayings. And one of them is, I felt like myself from the toes up. And the minute I walked on stage at 15 years old in my high school auditorium, I felt like myself from the toes up for the first time. And without even knowing, I hadn't felt like myself until that moment when it was just like, oh, wow. And I knew it was monumental in my life because I told no one. I knew something had happened and it was fragile. And if I told anyone, it was like a little flicker of a flame that anybody could walking by, could have gone, you know, and blown it out. So I kept that very close to my breast for a while till it grew. So I, you know, that's how it started. But once I did that, I knew that's what I'm doing. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'd never met anybody in show business. I didn't know any actors. I didn't know anything about that. But I had the wonderful gift of youth, which is naivete. You don't know what you can't do. So I just went toward that. 
I love that story so much. I had no idea you'd have such a visceral answer to that story. It's such a full body <laughs> hell yes experience. But I just want to say this to you because it's so genuine from me to you, which is that there's something about you, which is so unique in the sense that you're so lovable. Yes, you are super <laughs> handsome, but it's not really that that's the whole story. There's something about you that you have this innate humility. It's like you're the first to kind of have this self-awareness about yourself. And I feel like people relate to you because there's so much humility. And I think that's why audiences are just like glued because there's something so humble and genuine and maybe a little self-deprecating, but you are more of like a um, come with me person rather than a look at me person. Well, I like that. Come with me rather than look at me. I think that's very true. But I don't know if it's humility or shame. You know, I think it's, I have a very low shame threshold. And <laughs> and so I marvel at people that can just be sort of right out there and go, yeah, look at me. Aren't I fabulous? You know, I marvel at them. And I, I just wish I could have more of that. And I don't. And so I just sort of, you know, a lot of that self-deprecation or whatever, that humility or shame is... I do have that awareness, but you know, that awareness is a double-edged sword. It can be useful and it can also be getting in your way, watching yourself when you want to just, you know, forget yourself and get on with it, you know? So it's a double-edged thing. I I can't even imagine. I I heard Woody Allen say that he's never watched Annie Hall since he shot it. Like he just won't go back and watch it. And I'm like, that's fast, right? That movie is like a piece of art and it's just, yeah, I can't even imagine having to look at things and look at yourself on stage and all the things like that. Um, so what happened well, next? I kind of had the opposite. I kind of had the opposite thing in that I couldn't watch myself for years and years. Those early movies, I, I couldn't. When Pretty in Pink premiered, it was at the Man's Chinese Theater when it was called that back in the day. And when the lights went down, the credits started roll. I had to get up and leave the theater. I just couldn't sit there in a theater full of people and watch myself. I just felt too raw and naked, so I left. But you know. Only year, decades later could I watch these movies kind of go, oh, I get it. I see what I had, you know, and what, <laughs> I, what I had and what a lot of young people have, whether you have talent or not talent, that's beside the point. And some of the acting is pretty suspect and some of it. But what I had was that, <laughs> wonderful, that wonderful blossoming moment that we have in youth when... <laughs> Your life is a blank slate in front of you, and you're just kind of going, world, let me at it. And you don't know any better, and you haven't been hurt that much, so you just have an appetite and a desire, and there's that blossom of youth. And I had that in those early movies, and it's it's very attractive when you see it in anybody. You, you saw it in James Dean in East of Eden, you saw it Leonardo DiCaprio in Gilbert, the first Gilbert Grape or something. You know, you see it so when good. people just hitting the scene and then they become skilled and better and have careers or not but there's that moment it's like the rising sun it's like there's a few minutes when the sunrise is so stunning and so beautiful and then it's just gone and i had that in those early movies i think that's the kind of thing that you're and other people identified with back then a hundred zillion percent and i also think what you encapsulated i think every girl wants to be seen and you were the person that did that. That's like who you were, this person who could step outside of yourself and see somebody's experience. Well, that's all we, any of us want our whole lives long is to be seen. Just see me, hear what I have to say, see me. And when people see, you know, you see someone else, it's just they have room to then blossom, you know, and they feel received. 
that's a big deal. Yeah. And I feel like whether you know that or not, I feel like just who you are, like that's what you embody to me and to so many people that I know. So um, I think that's so healing. And that was so aspirational for us to be like, wow, maybe that's possible that somebody like that exists who's going to actually take a second to stop and witness in a real way, right? It's not just a pretty face. So I think that that goes really much further than you probably ever knew, but I'm just here to be one person to tell you that. No, um, that's really, that's lovely. Thank you. So what wound up happening next? So you, you're in Oliver, you sing, consider yourself, you're probably adorable. And then what, <laughs> and then what happens? I know you went to school, but then some stuff goes on there. Tell us a little about what happens next. Yeah, though I smoked a lot of pot, so I was really bad at school, and I didn't care about school. <laughs> terrible grades, and I auditioned for the acting program at NYU, and I got in there. It was the only school I got into. You know, this one guy got me in, and the, I auditioned, and he said, I'm going to get you in. Why are your grades so bad? And I said, well, I don't really care about them. And he said, I'm going to get you into this school. You know, I, at various points in my life, I've had these angels come by and just sort of go, okay, I'm yeah. going to help you. You know, we all need that. We all need someone at some point to help. And that's happened to me a number of times when I needed it. Anyway, I went to NYU and I went for two years and then I was kicked out of NYU because I didn't <laughs> go to my classes. You know, I went to my acting classes, but I didn't go to my school classes because I like, I was very honest. I didn't care. And so anyhow, then as I was trying to figure out how I was going to tell my parents that I had been kicked out of college, a friend called me and said there was an ad in Backstage Magazine, which was back in the day, the sort of unemployed actors newspaper came out once a week. And anyway, there was an ad for an open call for a movie where they wanted someone 18, vulnerable and sensitive for the lead in the movie. And I thought, come on, that's me. That's me. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's on the call, meaning anybody could go. Anyone could show up. You need no experience or anything. And so I went, I went to this, the Ansonia Hotel on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I waited with 500 other 18, vulnerable and sensitive kids. And, uh, <laughs> Eventually had my two minutes in there with a casting director who said, what have you done? And I said, nothing. (laughs) Anyway, he said, why don't you come to the office tomorrow? And I was like, seriously? So anyway, I went in 10 auditions later, I was cast as the lead in a movie called Class opposite Jacqueline Bissett, who at the time was, I think, Time Magazine had just called her the most beautiful film actress of all time. Oh my God. She was 38. I was 18. and. I was to play her young lover in this movie. And so I, I, I hit the jackpot. You know, I should have quit movie the industry right then. I should have done that movie and just quit. <laughs> but uh, So then I was leading the movie. And then I was in Hollywood. Suddenly I was in show business. And the uh, movie came out and it was a bomb. And, and then a couple of years later, I got a movie, St. Almost Fire, which really started my career. That is the most insane story. Like, honestly, like I've never heard anyone say that that's how their giant career started is by going to an open call with 500 other people and well it was even fun it was even better after the movie's over Jacqueline was like um Andrew what are you doing after the film and I said oh I have to go to Los <laughs> Angeles and get an agent I don't have an agent and she said where are you staying I said uh I don't know she goes well you'll stay with me I'm like really Okay, so I went and lived at Jacqueline Bissett's house out in Los Angeles for like two months while I made the rounds and tried to get an agent and all this stuff. And it was a crazy time. It was She was so generous and kind to me. And she was living with this Russian ballet star, Alexander Gudnov, who had just affected. And they were at all these wonderful, delicious sort of Hollywood parties. And I was this little kid at the end of the table going, you know, would you pass a soft Candace Bergen? You know, and you know, so it was a, a really wondrous sort of innocent time for me. 
And I really should have quit show business right then. But you didn't. And then you did a, a string of things. And and then you were sort of this very central figure. I mean, it was a different time because there weren't streamers. There was a few things going on and the whole world was watching them. That was it, right? If a movie came out, we were all watching it. If a show was That's on TV. Really correct. I mean, there's, there's no way what happened. And it's hard to, I couldn't explain it to my kids what that was like, because all of culture and youth culture was pointed in one direction. Exactly. Monday night, these movies came out and that's what you did. You got in line, you waited two hours, you went to the movie. And then if you were lucky, your friends waited for the next show and you saw it again. Exactly. And that's what you did. Everyone talked about it Monday morning. And if you didn't see that movie Friday night, you were out. You know, you weren't in on it. And that's what culture was for youth. And it was interesting to back it up even a little further. We were in the Brat Pack and those movies, we were the beginning of youth culture in cinema. You know, it didn't exist before that. And there were a whole lot of things lined up to make that happen. And, you know, the entrance of John Hughes was one of them where he took young people seriously. But Hollywood had just discovered the power of a young audience with movies like, you know, Endless Love or, you know, Animal House. And so suddenly Hollywood said, oh, kids go to the movies not once, but like five times. Let's make movies about them. And they started to do that. And I was right there when it happened. And that whole group was right there. So suddenly all of movies were about adolescent kids. And that had never happened before. Now, all movies, we've never recovered from that moment. Movies are still about adolescent mentality, whether it's Marvel movies or whatever. It's still juvenile adolescent mentality. And that never existed before. It was always grown up entertainment before that to movies. And so we were right at the beginning of that when it exploded. And like you said, there was Friday night, Everybody was looking at one thing, and that was what new movie was out. Yeah, and I just want to let my audience know, in case they don't, for any reason, if they don't know, that you wrote a book in 2021 called Brat. It was just all about what you were just talking about and the ins and outs of that. And yeah, I don't think that kids today would understand because there are so many famous people. I find out about people all the time that I've never heard of that have like 700 billion YouTube views. I'm like, I've never heard of this person. Everybody can be famous on the other side of their phone now. And in the 80s, it was like there were 12 people at a time that were famous. Yeah, it, it, was like right. a, it was like the royal family. It was like, oh, so I can't even imagine what that was like to be that projection, like Batman, like a bat signal up in the sky. I mean, that's so confusing, especially as you're growing up and for your ego to then outsource your adequacy to all of this fame needing to be at a certain fame barometer all the time. I mean, it's it's both like exhilarating and terrifying. Tell us a little bit about what you talked about in the book. What was that experience like for you? Well, you know, which, when it's your life, it's just your life. And I knew that not everyone was having that experience, but it just, things sort of feel normal because that's right. what's happening to you. And so one day suddenly... I couldn't go to the mall without being sort of the center of attention. And that hadn't happened the week before, you know, so, but then, okay, that's your life now. And then that's happening. And suddenly I'm very attracted to women where I wasn't, attra- I was invisible a month ago. And now suddenly <laughs> women are coming up and finding me attractive and thinking, I'm, so I didn't bask in it. I was afraid of it. I think I was sort of baffled by it a little bit. And you just sort of try and tread water as fast as you can. You know, you like those ducks on the surface. It looks, tries to look really calm. And underneath, it's just furiously going like that, you know? So all I was trying to do was get a next job. You know, it was different time. You didn't do a one movie. And then on Monday morning, we're offered $6 million for another movie. You were auditioning for every job you got and you fought for every job. And so it was a different time, but it was wonderful and exciting. It was all fine and great and exciting until the Brat Pack article came out. And then 
That was an article in New York Magazine that came out. It was supposed to be an article about Emilio Estevez, but he just, the writer made it about this whole group of young actors that Emilio hung out with and labeled us the Brat Pack, which I wasn't even in the original article. So it's interesting how whoever got ended up into the Brat Pack. But anyway, and once that happened, we forget now because the Brat Pack is such a warm and fuzzy, iconic phrase and it recalls a moment in youth and pop culture in the 80s that's now just sort of iconic. But at the time, it was a really derogative, negative phrase and cast an aspersion, and we hated it. And we did everything we could to get away from being called brats and part of a pack. Who wants either one of those things? And so the irony of that is the minute the Brat Pack label came out, everybody just kind of scattered and stopped doing those youth ensemble movies because they didn't want to be labeled in the Brat Pack. So the naming of it kind of ended that moment in time. But, you know, it's clung on all these decades, centuries later. And like I say, morphed into this sort of much different thing. You know, but at the time, it was really something to run from. And we hated it. Oh, my gosh, that makes so much sense. And I have never thought of that perspective, because to me, the Brat Pack was the counterculture. They were the the kids who actually, whatever hip hop did at a certain point for culture, I felt like the Brat Pack was the kids who had the courage to say out loud what the mainstream kids weren't saying, right? It was sort Mm -hmm. of like, the Hmm. indies it was like brooklyn it was like silver lake it was like the kids who actually were living one life on the surface but actually were vocal about what they really felt and it gave me a sense of empowerment so it's interesting how devastating that was on some level when to me that's like those are the people that you the the real people the cool kids. yeah that's really interesting you hear all sorts of versions of that and that's why it's take, you know, it took me decades really to come around and turn and into it and embrace it. And like we were joking earlier, you know, to realize that we become the avatars of people's youth in that way. We were those people. And I certainly didn't realize that at the time. I just found it sort of like, why are they saying this about me? And I was very, the irony is I was very much a loner and I lived in New York. I didn't hang out with anybody or any of those people who I liked, but I just didn't hang out with them. I lived in New York and I was very much into my own kind of world. So. It just seemed what we were talking about earlier. They're not seeing me. They're labeling me, but they're not seeing me. And I'm just beginning. And I wanted to be seen like we all do. And so suddenly I was in certain movies and that was my career. You're in the Brat Pack. That's what you do. I was like, oh. I heard Jim Carrey say, I'm sure you've heard this. It went like, it went so viral, but he was like, I wish everybody could be rich and famous to find out that being rich and famous is not what you're actually after, right? You're after some form of, Wholeness. Well, that's easy for rich and famous people to say, isn't it? Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, but no, I, I don't suppose it's what we're after. And I don't think that I certainly didn't get into show business to be rich and famous. I just wanted to be an actor because it made me feel like me, like we started with. Yeah. It made me feel like me to do it, which is how I ended up starting to write and travel, too, because it made me feel like me when I did it. And that was a surprise to me, just as acting was a surprise to me. That was a surprise to me when that happened later in my life. Yeah. And I think that that's the gift, right? Is just feeling like you belong to yourself, like you are in alignment. And I think that there are sides of being famous that are not pleasant. Well, it's famous, whatever. It has no intrinsic value of its own and doesn't mean it. But, you know, it certainly lubricates things and makes certain things easier. Certainly. But as a goal, there's no there there. So there's nothing to grab onto. If your goal is to be yeah. famous, I want things I do to be successful purely so that it allows, they'll let me do something else without too much of a hassle. And that's enough for me because, you know, yeah. I just want to keep doing what it is that I like to do. Yeah. So 
So what, what made you start traveling? Like what made you want to kind of get away from your typical routine and completely change scenery? Well, it's a very long story. I'll try and cut it short. But in the early nineties, I was starting, my career was, I was, I didn't respond to all that very well, the Brat Pack stuff. And I you know, hid. I also drank too much when I was younger. And so that was an issue. And then it took me a while to take care of that. And then I sort of, I walked along the Camino de Santiago in early mid nineties. And that changed my life. I read a book about a guy who did it. I'd never heard of the Camino de Santiago, which is this 500 mile old ancient Catholic pilgrimage, which I didn't do it for any religious reasons, but it was, it's this old pilgrimage across the north of Spain. And I walked that and it changed my life. And it changed my life for one reason. It helped illuminate how strong a role fear had played in my life. You know, there was one day in particular, I was walking through a field of wheat in the north of Spain and I got, fell to my knees and was sobbing. And I didn't know why. And as I sat there <laughs> weeping alone in this field of wheat, it occurred to me how much fear had dominated all my decisions in life and so much of my life. And in the moment of that realization, it was a great liberation for me. And not that fear is handled once and discarded because fear is a cunning foe, but once you're aware of something, you can never not be aware of it. So the stepping away on a literal and emotional basis from that moment forward changed my life. And so as that happened in that field of wheat, I felt just like I did when I was 15 years old as the Artful Dodger on stage. I went, oh, there I am. I feel like myself from the toes up in this instant. And I wanted more of that feeling. So I kept traveling and I traveled the world alone. And I found the further from home I got, the more at home in myself I felt. And then one day I started writing about it and I had the exact same feeling I had in the field of wheat. And when I was 15 years old, as the Artful Dodger went, oh, there I am. I feel like myself here. And so I became a travel writer and then I started writing books. And so, you know, people go, oh, well, you're a storyteller. And I'm like, okay, great. Yeah, I do that. But really, I'm just after things that make me feel comfortable in my skin that I find satisfying to do. And I feel like myself when I do them. That's why I'm a terrible businessman. You know, it's very downwardly mobile to go from being a movie actor to a travel writer. You know, what I mean? <laughs> but, you know so, but if this long rant makes any sense. The through line you pull strength through is that it just, I felt like me when I did it. And I wanted that feeling. The only thing I always knew is I never wanted to be anybody else. I just wanted to feel like me to the most of my ability. It's an incredible story. It's uh, kind of like that story about the fisherman who meets that Harvard businessman. And he's like, why don't you get three boats and then you can get a cannery and then you can do all this. He's like, and then for what? He's like, well, then you can relax and just hang out on the beach. He's like, but that's what I already do. You know? So it's like on one level, yeah, it doesn't make sense, but other level it does because you just kept going closer to what felt like truth and what felt really like you being who you were meant to be. So on that level, it feels really right. And it's amazing that you could take that walk. And I, I know that you now did it again with your son. You wrote a book about it, but it's incredible. I feel like we're living in a society and a culture where we don't have an inner world. We're constantly looking outside of ourselves and social media. Is, we're going to look back in years and see what it does to people. But it's like to have that time to walk yourself home to yourself. Oh, that's a good way to put yourself home to yourself is very good. You know, and I did that 27 years ago. You know, none of the social media stuff existed. You know, if you wanted to make a phone call, you had to find a pay phone and make a collect call. And it was a big deal. But yeah, when I walked it recently. So then again, yeah, I walked it a couple of years ago because during pandemic, you know, we we were all bombarded with so much fear. Right. And I just really felt fear welling inside me in such a strong way. We just kept being told to be afraid and be afraid and be afraid. And it's like. This is insane. 
Yeah. And so I said, for the minute I can, I'm going to walk across Spain. I need another sort of antidote. I need another booster shot of fear against fear. So, and then I invited my son to come with me. He was 19 at the time. He was just starting out in his sort of journey of life. And one of the, I'd say the greatest regret of my life would be that my relationship with my father sort of ended the minute I left home at 17. And I didn't want that to happen with my kids. So I wanted to try and transition our relationship from being, you know, parent child to adults and people that can just sort of have a different mature relationship together. So I asked him to come with me and he surprised me by saying yes. And so literally the minute he said yes, I ran to the other room, got on the computer and bought two plane tickets. And two days later, we were in Spain because I knew he would change his mind. <laughs> and so, so anyway, we walked across Spain together. And then this book, yeah, Walking with Sam came out of it. Walking the Camino is, I'd say, the best thing I've ever done twice. And my son had a big experience as well. I mean, on day two, he said, uh, Dad, what's the point of this fucking walk? And on the last day, he said to me, Dad, that's the only 10 out of 10 thing I've ever done in my life. So it was a beautiful thing to get to share that with him. And I had the great gift that a parent of adult children rarely have, which is time. You know, it's always they're running out the door. Hey, Sammy, you, you want to go out to dinner? Okay, I'll see you later. Whereas, you know, he would just talk. Like my son, you sit him down to talk, you're not going to get anything. But you get him moving. It all starts to come out. And, you know, and I could just sit there. One of the things I think I learned the most was just shut up, Andrew. Don't speak. Just let him talk. You don't have to have advice. You don't have to have answers. You don't have to be the wise one. Just be here. Walk beside him. And that was a beautiful lesson to me. And I think it was valuable. We just walked into a more sort of mature relationship for each other in a way that's different now than it was before. I'm totally crying because it's just to walk beside, just be a witness, like just be there. And just be there. And you know, there's something about the physical act of walking, particularly with what you were alluding to, our, all our social lives, all our out life. Our, like you said, our life is so out. It's so true now. I never put it like that. But we found ourselves, we didn't make any rules about the phone, but less and less looking at the phone as time went on. And to just sort of hear yourself and feel your own rhythm. There's something profound about the rhythm of walking. It's the rhythm we were meant to move at, you know? We've gotten obviously so far away from that. It was an amazing thing and to just walk. Every day you get up and you walk and that's all you're doing. You're walking, you're eating, you're sleeping. And you'd think that sounds incredibly boring, but you're never bored for a second. You just go further into yourself and then you're confronted with all sorts of stuff. You could end up sobbing in a field a week, you know, like I did, or... I mean, my son had vicious fights about stuff that needed to come out for years. And then the stuff I learned about him that I never knew he was carrying. And, you know, and the love that sort of blossoms up. And then you just go back to walking and you go back to walking and just walk it off. You know, and it was an amazing experience. I would recommend it to anyone in life. And I've had friends who've been at moments in life. And I had a friend who was middle-aged and he got fired from his job, big job. And he said, I what do I do? I don't know what to do. And he's frantically trying to get interviews. I said, dude, you need to go walk the Camino. He said, I can't walk across Spain. I need to get a job. I have a family. I need to get a job. I go, dude, you need to walk the Camino. <laughs> and he did. He listened to me. He did. And he was like, that's the best thing I ever did. And he got a great job. But <laughs> I would recommend it as a, it's a profound, it's a life changing. It's grueling, but in a different way. But there's something about being on a pilgrimage route. There's nothing to discover. Millions, literally millions of people over centuries have done this walk. And you're funneling into the current of that. And there's something intangible about funneling into that current. All the discoveries are internal. That is deeply profound. And I'll stop. It all sounds like I'm a, I'm a zealot. But, you know, anyway, it was a nice walk. 
it was a nice walk and you wrote a book about it. It's called walking with Sam. And I mean, you just shared so many beautiful thoughts. You talked about the first time you did the walk and crying in the field of wheat. What do you feel like the second walk? Was there a moment of a part of you that became conscious of something you had been unconscious of? Was there something that was revealed to you about yourself that you feel like you got on this walk? You know, I think some of the insights we get on that, it took me years, many of them from the first Camino to realize, oh, that was because of the Camino I learned. So this time, I'd say at the moment that one of the biggest lessons I learned was just, it's so simple and sort of whatever, but we're enough, you know, we're enough. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn anything. You're enough. And whatever you are is what I have to offer you. I can't try and be like this great dad, you say, I'm going to know this stuff and be the strong man and all this. I'm like, I'm here and this is what I have to offer. And the courage to just say, this is all, this is what I have to offer. And knowing that that's enough. Because we spend so much time trying to puff up and do all this stuff. And and that was a big deal. And even saying that now, I feel incredibly vulnerable saying that now, you know. But the truth of the experience was that, you know, I can try and deny that now if I want. But that was the, the experience of that, that we're enough. And he's enough. I'm enough. Everybody's walking. We're all enough. And we spend a lot of our time unconsciously not believing that, I think, and accommodating for lack of belief and stuff. And we do a lot of harm because we just lash out with people because we don't believe and we don't, you know. So anyway, I'd say that was a lesson that I hope would keep unfolding for me and just sort of keep dropping deeper. (laughs) It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's like exactly what my audience needs to hear. It's probably what everyone needs to hear. It's really exhausting and it's really bizarre. Like we live for our next achievement, for the next thing we're going to put. The next little beep on the thing, the next little endorphin hit of, I got an email. How many likes? I'm like, oh my God. You know, with my son wanting him to, whatever, it's like, it's just power of example. No one listens to anything. Maybe we don't teach anybody anything. They just observe and see. And the more we're sort of at home in ourselves, the more people go, okay, I like, that's attractive. I mean, who isn't attractive who's at home in themselves? This is very attractive quality. And we want more of that. We want to be around people who are like that. I do. When you're home from one of these incredible trips, how do you stay grounded? Do you have a practice or? No, you don't. It's hopeless, isn't it? It's so, dis- it's so disappointing. You go home three days later. It's like, oh, no, I had all this insight I was going to bring into my life. But now I'm just back checking my <laughs> Um I don't know. You know, life, um, you just try and you simplify as much as you can. Life goes on and, and we can't ever stay in that bubble, you know, and it's silly to try and hold on to it because it just doesn't work like that. Talking to you about this stuff now, I wish I go, oh, I should put that in the book. I mean, it is in the book. It's what underpins the whole book without saying it. You know what I mean? Um, and I've said some of the things, I guess, in the book, but I don't think you can't hold on to anything. That's the whole point. You can't hold on to anything. And you just sort of, you incorporate stuff and you're still you and whatever. And then you hopefully react a little less and all that stuff. And fear dissipates a bit. And be able to recognize the stuff when it happens and just go, okay, let it go. I, I don't know the answer. And I think that's fine. You know, I guess when you come to realize that it's okay not to know, it's fine. But just do things that make you feel, you know, I know checking my phone 112 times a day does not make me feel like the way I want to feel. But if I go, you know, walking for a while, I just went out today and walked for like two hours listening to an audio book. And it's like, that really helped me. <laughs> when you wrote this book and you finished it, what was one hope that you had that the reader would take away? Just identification. Just that they go, yeah, yeah, I feel like that. I feel like that. 
I know what that feels like. I just wanted people to walk beside us as we walked across Spain. I want the reader to just walk beside us and sort of substitute their own. You know, I tell something that happened with me and Sam and our relationship, and they just substitute their own into it. You know what I mean? We're just sort of the avatars for people's own experience. So you, all you want is a, when you're writing books, you get people nodding their heads. And, uh-huh, uh-huh. I feel the same way. I never went to Spain, but I feel exactly that. I never talked about this with my dad, but I, talk, I feel exactly that. You just want to feel less alone, right? Isn't that what we, all these things we try and create are so that we feel less alone and feel connection because connection is where it's at, right? And we can often feel desperate for connection. You know, it's all this phone stuff and all these people and we're desperate for connection. And I guess what we're finding out is all that really isolates us further. But even when that stuff didn't exist, people want, you know, and I'm a loner. I tend to be very fearful of people. And you still ultimately want connection. A party with 100 people makes me very uncomfortable, but I want to connect. But I think connections were the name of the game. That's where the goal's at. And connection with yourself as well. Connection with myself as well as connection with other people. You know, and I find I have to connect with myself first before I go connect with you. I can't go get from you what I need from me. It's just that's that kind of desperate thing is that's trouble. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think people, I do think people make a lot of mistakes in that when they go desperately trying to get that connection from someone else before we're connected with ourselves. I think that's dangerous. That can't work in my experience. Yeah, a hundred percent. I lived in Spain actually for a semester during college and it was so beautiful. Mm, and then I where? I lived in Valencia. That's where my college was. And then I spent a lot of time in Barcelona. And then I lived for three years in Jerusalem after college. And I love living abroad because you drop the program, you know, whatever the program is, the roles you play, you get to just like control, alt, delete, you know, delete the browser history. And now it's just you. Really well put. That's really, that's exactly what it is. And who doesn't want that? I mean, God, that's very well put. That's exactly what it does. And that's why I think particularly young people should go out and without thinking about it too much, see as much of the world as you possibly can. Because get rid of all the stuff your family taught you and your parents taught you. Just go, go and discover it for yourself. The world is there to be discovered for each person. They're the first person ever. Like my son, when he, one of the reasons we went walking is because he just broke up. He was heartbroken. He had lost his first relationship and come to an end after a year and a half. It was his, and he was the first heartbroken person ever. And that's as it should be. Everyone's experience is the first one. That's what the world wants is everyone to experience it for the first time, you know. And traveling is a quick conduit for that, too. You know, when I travel again, even now, it's, I go somewhere new and I just that thrill of wonder, joy and that I don't carry around in my daily life so much. For traveling, it's an easy way to trigger that. And when I'm filled with wonder and sort of joy and surprise and impulsivity, then I'm not the jaded, cynical, tired person that I can be in day-to-day life. And then, of course, like you're saying, the trick is bringing that back into our life. But, you know, some stays, some falls away, and you go, go do it again. Fail better. When you think about all the places that you've gone other than Spain, what's one other place that you just feel is magical? I love remote places, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a pretty solitary guy. I love Patagonia. So down the tip of South America was remarkable. I love that. There's this the vastness and the sound of the silence was terrifying. I stayed in this one place where I was, and you had to take a boat four hours to get there. Oh my this God. Is this place, and, and it was the only one staying there. And it was just oh terrifying. God solitude you know and i was something that was one you know amazing so i you know i love the sahara desert i thought the desert was really cool i do like deserts i think there's something quite a lot going on in a desert but you know that said 
Paris is always a good idea, right? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I'm like kids. If I'm not having a good time on a trip, I either need a nap or a snack. You know what I mean? <laughs> going and just going is there's a real rejuvenating force. Travel is optimism and action. And so who doesn't want to return to optimism, you know, however guarded it may be. Yeah. And I'm curious, I asked this to Phil Rosenthal, what have you learned um, about human beings going around the world? So I'm going to ask you the same question. What have you learned about humankind going to so many different countries? Oh, people are much kinder than we're told they are, you know, out in the world. The world is a very welcoming place. We've been told to fear the world and the people are other and different and want to harm us. And that's just not my experience at all. Everybody just wants their kids to do well and do better than they did and to just have people be happy and have a good time. You know, people want to have a good time. You know, I just find the world's a welcoming place. And one of the things I do, and I speak no languages, I speak American. And (laughs) go, hi, can you help me? And no one has ever said no. You say that, you're just kind of, you're making yourself open and vulnerable. And I think vulnerability is a great strength. It's gotten a rap as such a weakness, right? But I think that that's one of our greatest strengths is that vulnerability and that because it allows you then a space to be that way. And then we can connect, which is what we're talking about. And then we're more powerful. And then we're going, wait, I'm going to take you to this really cool place. And then you're having fun and you're dancing and you're doing this amazing thing. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the most beautiful things ever said ever is that the world is actually such a welcoming place and we're told to fear it. And it's really not true. And that was my experience as well. I mean, I was living in Jerusalem you know, watching the news about what people were saying about it. And meanwhile, like having the best time, like getting to meet Armenians, Arabs, Jews, Christians, everyone's the people I were like day to day to day to life. I was just like, and living in Spain, you know, and going to Morocco and meeting all kinds of people. And I was like, just kind, good people. It was, I don't even have a story to report about something that was not nice. I really don't, but I see it on the news and I see it in my Instagram feed. And so that is really so powerful. Well, I think anything in my my experience, the, the big experience of my life has been the dispelling of fear and the constant fears, you know, like water just keeps seeping in and fear map raises lots of things and people tell us to be afraid. And I have so much, I wake up sometimes and it's like fears at the end of the bed going, oh good, I'm glad you're awake. I've been wanting to talk, you know, <laughs> and I think that it's constantly telling fear and we make a lot and just to recognize fear for what it is and then go, okay, am I going to allow fear to dominate this decision or am I going to walk through that fear? And I think that's a huge question to ask. Like, I'm terrified of flying, which is ridiculous. I fly all the time, but I kind of went, that's a ridiculous fear. At least it's easily nameable and it's whatever it is. It's not very subtle. So it's easy to challenge. I go, well, I'm terrified of flying, but it's not going to stop me from doing what I want, go where I want to go. Wow. So I'm just terrified for eight hours on the plane. And then I go, I'm an idiot. Okay, that was fine. And get on with it. But most fear is more cunning than that. But I, I just think fear is the big chestnut often. And I, I gave a lot of talks about, you know, at different places. And invariably, when I talk about fear, there's a certain segment, several people, usually guys, usually big guys, get up and walk out. They don't want to hear that. I'm not talking about that. That's bullshit. You know? And they're like, dude, if it gets you, you got it, you know? And I think acknowledging fear, again, it's that sounds like a weakness that we were told this is some weakness that we have to be afraid or to be vulnerable. And I just think that's, I don't know how we get sold that bill of goods. <laughs> 100% you know? with you. I'm 100% with you. And it's so refreshing and gorgeous. And, you know, that which we resist is what persists. And it's like, why are we hmm. running from just being able to acknowledge that, you know? And, oh, you're so refreshing. I feel like you, 
are all these things, a philosopher, a monk, a priest, a rabbi, a preacher, a teacher, and just like an honest, simple human all rolled into one. It's like the amount that you have gained in insight is profound and such a gift. And you're so adorable and smart and sweet. (laughs) I'm just a fool from New Jersey. (laughs) So tell us when this book comes out. It's very soon. It comes out May 9th. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Well, we're going to put a link in the show notes to everything. And real quick, do you still have any part of you? Is there one ounce of you that craves going back into acting? Or do you feel like you've satisfied that part of yourself? Well, I hadn't acted in years. I've been directing television for the last 10, 15 years. And that was fine. I, I, I acted on the show this last year on the show was on called The Resident, which is like a medical show. And, and I played some brilliant but arrogant, yet oh so charming pediatric surgeon. <laughs> and um, it was like breathing to me. You know, the joke about two fish are swimming by each other and one says, ain't the water fine today? And the other says, what water? Right. And when I acted again after so long, it was like coming home to myself in a certain way. It was, it was a thrill. And so I think it's something I'd like to do more of again. You know, I was happy to take a step away from it for a while and to step back into it again, 10 years down the line, I'd learned so much. It was able to do what we're talking about. I was able to just do less and just accept who I was and where I was at. And so the acting was much sort of smoother and finer as opposed to pressing and trying to impress. It was just more present. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the acting. And so I think I'm afraid I may have the bug again. <laughs> I mean, being in your presence, I feel like everybody gets a software update. I hope we're not glitching. (laughs) I'm sure I'm one of a zillion people who've said this to you, but I wonder if there's a one-man Broadway show of you telling all of these things to the world. That's all. Just want to say that out loud. You're the first. You're the first. (laughs) No way is that true. I can't believe I would be the first to say that because... Way, dude. (laughs) Everything you just said, it's a winner. We all need it. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you so much for being you. Thank you so much for sharing yourself. So generously and genuinely i feel like you're just from toes up you're just all love it's awesome well you're great thank you thanks for uh having me and now i feel terribly vulnerable <laughs> you're just i can't it's so surreal for me i mean because i was like five six eight ten you know kind of like right there in the front row but you never think that the people who you look up to are going to turn out to be also the kindest sweetest people but it's pretty cool when they do. No, you're nice. You know, you just keep showing up in life. You never know what's... I have those when I go, if you told my 15-year-old self that I would be... Are you out of your... I would have given anything. You know, I remember <laughs> that the first time when I was... I'll leave you this story. That when I was in seventh, eighth, ninth grade, I had the biggest crush. I was in love with Judy Lubin. And any time, <laughs> if you told me I would get to go to the senior prom with Judy Lubin, I would have said, I'll endure anything these next five years. If you tell me when I'm a senior, I can go to the prom with Judy Lubin. Well, I did go to the prom with Judy Lubin and it was the most boring, uneventful night of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I really took a lesson from that though. It's like, you just don't know. You don't know what you're going to want or what your things are going to transpire. That's why you just keep showing up. Just suit up and show up and you just don't know. But Judy's turned out to be a lovely person. We're friends throughout the decades. So that's nice. <laughs> like Judy, if you're listening, only love for you. Thank you so much. Thank you're you. adorable. All the best. That was so much fun. He's such a gem. All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, all we want is to be seen. When you see someone else, you give them room to blossom. They feel received and that's a big deal. 
Number two, keep going closer to what feels like truth, what makes you feel like yourself from the toes up in this instant and makes you say, oh, there I am. Number three, we're enough. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to earn anything. Know that it's enough to say I'm here and this is what I have to offer. Number four, walk yourself home to yourself. Number five, connection is the name of the game. That's where the goal's at, but you have to connect with yourself first. Number six, travel is optimism in action. People are much kinder than we're told that they are. The world is actually a really welcoming place. Number seven, that which we resist is what persists. Recognize fear for what it is and ask yourself, will I allow fear to dominate this decision or will I walk through that fear? And number eight, you don't know what you'll want or what things will transpire. That's why you just suit up and show up. Thank you guys so much for listening. I know that I say this week after week, but I'm so glad. It means so much to me that you would choose to spend your time here. If there's anyone who you could think of who would appreciate today's episode, then please subscribe to this podcast, make sure you're following us, and then send the link to this episode to a friend of yours. You could text them, you could email them, post a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us so much. And I just want you to know, thank you. Like, honestly, thank you. I started this podcast six and a half years ago in my closet. And to say that it's been life-changing is a total understatement. It's hard to believe that we're about 40 million downloads in and over 6,000 reviews, and it's all because of you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, if you want to hang out this week, we're doing a five-day free workshop. You can go to kathyheller.com slash abundant and sign up and grab your spot. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you soon. Oh.